Well, good morning. It's, uh, it's great to have each of you here today. If you have your Bibles, I ask you to turn over to Mark chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 21 down through chapter 6 and verse 6. Ah, Junior Church is dismissed at this point. Thank you. Thank you very much. have to get back into that routine there. You know, one of the things we've come to learn in the last six, eight months is that sickness is no respecter of persons. And we certainly know that with the COVID sickness. Um, But we know it in general with other things, don't we? Whether it's something that's acute, an acute sickness that comes upon us, or whether it's something that's chronic that we've struggled with for months and months or perhaps years and years. It's no respecter of persons. The question is, what do you do about it? Well, we do a lot of things. We, we, we go to doctors, and that's a good thing. I mean, God in his grace gives us doctors, so I'm not opposed to doctors at all. I go to doctors. We talk to people. We go here and we go there. And like I, I, I understand that. But what should we do First and foremost, when a crisis comes into our life. And, and, and in this case, the passage we're going to be looking at today, yeah, it's, it's physical. I get it. It's sickness. One is chronic. One is, one is acute. Fair enough. But perhaps your issue is more relational. Perhaps it's circumstantial, something that's happened at work financially for you. I don't know what it is. And we tend to run all kinds of different, to all kinds of places. And this text will call us afresh and tell us where we need to actually run and what we actually need to do. So come with me, if if you would, to this text. I think what we'll find is this, in this passage, is you're going to find two very different approaches to the crises in our lives. The one is we're going to see desperate faith in Jesus. And this is really where I want to camp out. It's, it's the bulk of the verses. But there's also going to be, in chapter 6, an indifference denial of Jesus. And, 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 and as I was reading through this passage, I couldn't help but to recall afresh that two people can have the exact same experience and handle it very, very different in the relationship with Christ. So watch what these individuals do. And ask yourself, which one of the, these individuals is most like you? Fair enough? So we begin, and this, this particular passage is, is they, they, they ask, scholars will often call it a, a sandwich story. Because what you have is, it starts out with an encounter between Jesus and a synagogue leader by the name of Jairus. And you kind of get about, you just start that story when all of a sudden there's another story inserted right in the middle. And then that gets resolved and then you go back to the Jairus story again. And it has almost a kind of a sandwich feel to it. So that's part of what we're going to be looking at here. The other thing, though, I want you to notice as we look at at these individuals that come to Jesus 
just how different they are. And so I've listed here several things to be watching for. We're going to find a man on the one hand and a woman on the other. Okay, fair enough. There's a gender distinction. But it, it's, it's much deeper than that. The, the man is named Jairus. And there's some debate over the, the Hebrew word that it comes from, but it, it, it can literally mean he awakens, which is kind of interesting when you think about what's going to happen to his daughter, you know. And so even bound up in his name. But, but the point is this. Jairus has a name. Everybody in that community would know Jairus. The woman is unnamed. We don't know her name. No scholar knows her name. She goes unnamed in the text. And it's probably reflective of the culture in which she lived because she was an outsider. And you know what? That woman would be a better way to describe her than giving her a name. Do you see? The man is probably wealthy. He's, he's a synagogue leader. And if he's, it's, 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 what, what they often did is they would have a series of elders that would be over a synagogue, but there would often be one that was kind of the lead guy. And that guy typically was wealthy. He made sure the synagogue was provided for and he was very influential and very important. So here you have a man of wealth. This particular woman who's been sick for 12 years years has spent all of her money and she's in financial ruin she doesn't have any money left to go to doctors she spent it all this man is honored if this takes place around Capernaum and you heard the name Jairus people go oh yeah I know Jairus He's the, he heads up the synagogue over there. You, any connection with him, he was a good man. This woman lived in constant shame. We, we don't understand this quite as much in our culture. But, but, but in the ancient world, Jewish world in particular, there was a whole series of rituals and ceremonies. And, 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 and within Judaism, if, if, if a, if, if a person had a physical discharge, like they were bleeding, which is probably her situation. Um, and, and like when a woman went through her time period each month, for that period she would be considered unclean ceremonially. And, and, and there's all kinds of stuff built into that. It's ultimately showing us symbolically the fact that it's hard to approach a holy God. So there's a lot of things going on within the culture. But nonetheless, here's a woman whose bleeding is constant. Which means she's always unclean. She can never go up to the temple and worship. People are always saying, I mean, you think it's hard in our day when people say, you got to quarantine for 14 days. She quarantines for 12 years. She sits on that seat. You don't sit on that seat or you're unclean too. And she lives in constant shame. She can't walk up and hug somebody. She can't do any of those things. 
So here's a guy with honored status. He walks by and you go, yes, she walks by and she's treated like a leper. He is clean ceremonially. She is unclean. He is connected to community. She is an outcast. I mean, you couldn't have two more different people in the world. His problem is going to be a acute traumatic problem that comes in suddenly. Hers is going to be a chronic problem that has lasted for years. You know what the beauty is of this text? It doesn't matter who you are. It matters what you do with Jesus. Do you see? The person who has it all together will not always have it together. Nobody lives life with it together always, ever. Maybe largely your life looks pretty good. And then there's other people, it's just non-stop hard. And the answer for each is Jesus. Very different people as we talk through this story. Don't you love that? Because that means you could put your name in this text. Yeah, but I, doesn't matter. We could put your name on one side and somebody else's on the other. The point is, you're on the list. The issue, that's not the issue. The issue is, what do you do with it? And what we find is two people coming to Jesus. And Jesus doing what only he can do. So, fascinating to look at these two characters. And just, just how different they are. Let me, um, let me just pop back here as we look through. So, let, let's start with the passage, verse 21. And remember, Jairus is introduced first. And then, and then we're going to have the, the woman. But really, really interesting. Here's something else that just strikes me as fascinating. How well does Jesus get along with the religious leaders? You know, kind of iffy. Now, you know, we, that's not true of everybody. Here's an example, a, a, an exception. But on the whole, if this guy is the, one of the leaders of one of the local synagogues in Capernaum, of the key, the key one in Capernaum... There's a lot of pressure on him because they've had issues with Jesus in the past, like what he does on the Sabbath and what he's teaching in their synagogues. They've had issues with him. And so there's a lot of pressure on this guy not to, you know what I mean? He's got to be, he's got to watch his clientele. But in a moment of desperation, he doesn't care. So listen what the text says. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, which means he was now back in the area of Capernaum on Jewish, in Jewish territory, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Like, that happens everywhere Jesus goes, doesn't it? I mean, he pulls up and there's just throngs of people. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his feet. He didn't care what the other elders at the local synagogue thought. He didn't care what his neighbors thought. None of that. He saw Jesus and he said, my 
only hope is him. And he comes and he prostrates himself on the ground before Jesus. He pleads earnestly with him. My little daughter is dying. In the Greek, um, you can translate a Greek word just meaning daughter, but sometimes you can add to it and make it this very personal, special, little daughter. And it doesn't just mean small, but she's my precious one. And the guy falls at his feet and he's, He's a father. Like what father doesn't love their, their children or their daughters? He says, my little girl, she needs help. She's dying. This is not like just a, a little temperature and she's going to get better. She's going to die. We, what, what was her problem? We don't know. But he knew she was right at the cusp of death itself. And she looks at him and she says, it's my little girl. Please, Come. Put your hands on her so that she will be healed and lived. Whatever else I can say about Jairus, whose name means he awakened. He knew enough to come to, to, come to Jesus and say, I know you and only you can be the answer. The next verse is just kind of a quick throwaway, but it's a pretty important one. So Jesus went with him. <laughs> I mean, what could Jesus have said? Hey, pal, do you see all these people? Like, who do you think you are? Like, I got, I got stuff to do with the crowds, whatever. Grab one of my disciples and I'll give them power. They can go do it. No, no, not Jesus. Jesus is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. And Jesus turns, and what we're going to find out in the text, he's actually not going to take all of his disciples with him. It's just a select bunch. I guess he leaves the other ones to kind of watch for the crowds for a while. But Jesus turns and just begins to go with this man. Isn't that just like Jesus? Do people ever come to Jesus and Jesus says, sorry pal, busy. Can you call back at four? Or maybe next Tuesday. Never. Sometimes people call me and they say, can I set up an appointment? I go, well, I'm kind of busy. Can we reschedule? Or, you know what I mean? You know, Jesus just leaves the group because that's who he is and starts going with this guy. And we're all hopeful at this point, aren't we? And then in the midst of doing that, something else happens. Enter this woman. What a story this is. So listen to what it says here at the end of verse 24. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. So at least initially, he's going to separate from him just a little bit, but at least initially. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. Now again, what's interesting is Mark, as he's writing this story, slows down and gives you a description of this woman. When, 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 the, when the storyteller in scripture slows down and gives you a description, you ought to slow down and consider that description. Because it's like really important. So it's exactly what happens here. This woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. 
So it, it was some, something perhaps menstrual or maybe a bleeding uterus. or I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what it was. But this woman, she had this constant bleeding. And, and, and as embarrassing as that can be in our culture, in her culture it meant complete isolation and shame. Because it meant you were constantly, ceremonially unclean, and people could, could not get near you. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors. I don't want to get into that one, but... And if you're a doctor here, God bless you. We need good doctors, so I get that. But my guess is, everybody from time to time has gone to the doctor and come away and said, well, that wasn't very helpful. I mean, we, we, we kind of know that. So I'm not down on doctors. I'm just saying, this woman ran the gamut on that. And listen to what happens. She, she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all that she had. She was financially ruined. Yet, instead of getting better, she grew worse. I mean, it's one thing if I give everything I have to a doctor... And it works. I suppose it's another thing if I give everything and it stays at, at, a, at an even keel. But how about when you give everything and you get worse? How would you feel? Are you feeling hopeless? Why do anything? Who can I trust? Nobody cares about me. They used me. I, I have no resources to do anything anymore. I mean, can, can it get any more desperate than this woman? And Mark wants us to slow down and hear her plight. I um, read something this morning. I had gotten up and I was just looking. And one author notes that from a, a, a later writing called the Talmud, which is Jewish writing that occurs somewhere around 400, 500 AD, several hundred years later, but they're still wrestling with these kinds of issues. And there's, there's a particular tractate in there which actually deals with this particular issue itself, which is this bleeding from a woman. And here is the advice that is given in the Talmud. Take of the gum of Alexandria the weight of a small silver coin, of alum the same, of crocus the same. Let them be bruised together and given in wine to the woman who has an issue of blood. If this does not benefit, take of the Persian onions three pints. Now, onions can do quite a bit sometimes, we all know that. Boil them in wine and give her to drink and say, Arise from thy flux. If this does not cure her, set her in a place where two ways meet and let her hold a cup of wine in her right hand and let someone come behind her and frighten her and say, arise from thy flux. I'm not saying that she got any of that advice. But my guess is she got stuff like that. And none of it worked. And she devises a plan She knows that Jesus is the answer. And she knows, we see this throughout the Gospel of Mark, if you can just touch him, or if he can just touch you, you'll be okay. 
And she's desperate because what happens when the unclean touches the clean? The clean becomes unclean, right? And she's not, you know, she's desperate. So she figures if I can just kind of slide in among the crowd, if I can just touch his garment. I really believe Jesus will make a difference. Do you know how risky it is to hope again? But she does because of what she knows about Jesus. And I don't know how she knew that, but she knew something. So listen to what the text says. Verse 27. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Verse 29. The first word, can you imagine what this was like for a woman who had suffered for 12 long years? The text says, immediately her bleeding stopped. And she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. What would that have been like? She, she gets up and she touches him. And it's like, it's gone. I mean, I can just, I can just feel it. This statement from Leviticus is no longer true of her. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge, she shall continue in uncleanness. Twelve years. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge, shall be to her as the bed of her impurity. And everything on which she sits shall be unclean, as in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean, and shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water, and be unclean until the evening. That's what she lived with for 12 years. It's gone. She instantly knew it. Now, from her perspective, she wanted to just kind of slither away. (laughs) You know? Snake up. Nobody incognito. Nobody really knows I'm here. Touch them and get out of there as quick as you can. But Jesus would have none of that. And it wasn't because he wanted to embarrass her. He actually wanted to bless her. So notice what happens next. Verse 30. At once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. It wasn't like Jesus was didn't know about. No, Jesus knew. He turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? And you, you know, you gotta take your hat off to these poor disciples. Right, right? I mean, think about it. Like, they are just thronging Jesus. You can see it, right? They're just, you know, they're walking. Jesus is trying to fo- follow Jairus, and the disciples are pushing people back, and people are touching. And I mean, you're rubbing people all the time. 
And so like when I hear what the disciples say, I, I know it was insensitive, but like I totally get it, honestly, in all fairness to them. Um, so so notice, notice what happens in verse 31. You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? Come on, Jesus, what do you mean who touched you? But again, they're just thinking up here, aren't they? Jesus knows the, the, the faith touch of that woman. He knew exactly what was going on. Verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking, some people, I'm sorry, I skipped an important part there. That's not good, is it? But verse 32. But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet. You ever hear that one before? There you go again. And trembling with fear, she told him the whole truth. He's looking, who touched me? And she's thinking in her heart, oh man, he's going to be so mad. Is he going to be mad? Maybe not, I don't know. But maybe, did I make him unclean? Is he going to rebuke me? What's he going to say? What are the people going to say? I wanted to slip in and slip out. You can see how she's feeling. And so she falls down and she tells him everything. Jesus, this is where I've been. This is what I've experienced. And I had given up hope. And I heard about you. And out of desperation, I reached out and touched the only one that I thought that could help me. And then she waits for his response. Folks, look at his response. His response is unbelievable. I love it. Verse 34. He said unto her, don't you ever do that again to me. Is that what it says? No way. No way. Look at what it says. Daughter. This unnamed woman is now described as a daughter of the living God. I, I mean, the first words out of Jesus' mouth when he sees her, you have a relationship with God because you have a relationship with me, daughter. Your faith has healed you. Literally in the Greek, it says your faith has saved you. Now, it's talking about the physical healing, but I would argue that there's a double meaning going on there. He looks at a woman who wanted physical healing coming to only Jesus who she knew was the only one that could do it. And in, the, in, in that experience, Jesus says, you have a relationship with the living God through me. And not just that. You who have been severed from your culture and your society, look at what he says. Go in peace. Shalom. Which means all of those community relationships which were severed or distanced. Peace. Restoration. You can go sit on that seat and someone can sit on it after you. You can actually hug somebody. And be freed from your suffering. You will never experience this again. He touches her spiritually, socially, 
and physically at every level. She was thinking, what's he going to say to me? He's going to say, restored to God, to people, to your individual health. Don't you want to talk to that woman when you get to heaven? Man, I do. Man, I got a load of questions for her. So what you do next? Are you somewhere in the book of Acts and we just don't know your name? You're in one of those crowds somewhere? It's my guess. And so as he's trying to go along with Jairus, with all the crowds, he stops and takes time for a no-name woman who he loves as much as Jairus. Back to Jairus. Look at verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came, came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. They said, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? And, and again, in all fairness to these people, they weren't expecting Jesus to do that. They figured if the person's still alive, okay, Jesus can heal possibly. But I hate to tell you, Jairus, that little girl that you love, she's dead. Just let the teacher do what he's going to do with other people. Look at how Jesus responds to this one. Overhearing what they said, verse 30, uh, verse, uh, verse 36, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. You, you may have a translation that actually doesn't say overhearing, it says ignoring what they said. And it's hard to know the, the words translated both ways. I, I tend to think it means ignoring. I, 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 I think they came and said, forget the Jesus thing, she's dead. And Jesus just ignores them because that's falsehood and looks back at Jairus and says be fearless in your faith watch what I can do Jesus did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James and John the brother of James so it was just Jairus and the three disciples in Jesus, he kept everybody else at a distance. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but, but asleep. But they laughed at him. Now this may seem a little strange to you, but in the ancient world... What you would often do is you would, um, at the death of somebody, especially if you were a person of, of means, you would often have a musician and a couple people come and mourn at the death of that person. I mean, they may not even know the person real well, but they, they were professional mourners. We read about them elsewhere in the Gospels. We read about them in the Old Testament. You read about them in other Jewish literature. And, and so, so it wasn't all unusual, you know, if you had more money, you could have more mourners and more people playing dirge music, okay? 
It was just, it's what they did, and so whether you, that, that, that's, that's what they did. So Jesus comes in, and it's a commotion. Oh, people are crying, and then, you know, you know, paid people doing this kind of thing, and all the whole thing's going on, and Jesus says, um, she's just asleep. And they said, what is wrong with you? She's dead. Who is this guy? For Jesus, the one who controls life and death, even death is just a pause before she's returned to mortal life again. So for them, it sounded stupid. They're thinking on this plane. And Jesus is thinking on a different plane. When you look at it in light of eternity, She's really, yeah, she, she's died, but it's not permanent. I'm bringing her back. It's a pause at best. So what does Jesus do? He pushes those folks out too. After he put them out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. Folks, I want you to realize something. Jesus breaks every law of cleanliness in this passage. Jesus, you would talk to me before you went into this. You can't let somebody who's unclean touch you. In Jesus, the Old Testament is very clear. If you go into the home of somebody who has died, you become unclean. But in the fulfillment of the Old Testament, it all gets reversed. Always unclean makes clean unclean. But in Christ, clean makes unclean clean. Everything gets turned on its head. When Jesus comes into this room, he touches the hand of a corpse. It's a violation. Unless you're the true and living God. <laughs> because in the Old Testament, it was always about not being able to approach the Holy One. In the New Testament, the Holy One is among us. And so if the Holy One grabs you, what's that do to you? Do you see? It's a total reversal. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. And I, and, and I think one of the reasons we find out she was 12 years old, of course the 12 plays on the 12 earlier with the other woman. But it, like if she was two years old, she'd have a hard time kind of getting up herself and walking. He's going to say, no, this, this girl's 12. She, you know, when she's healthy, she can walk around. Right? So it's just saying, this, Jesus comes up. He touches the cold hand of a corpse. It says, get up. Little girl, get up. And the eyes start to flutter. <laughs> the blood comes back into the skin. She opens her eyes. She pops up. And she starts walking around. 
How do you think you're doing as Jairus and Jairus' wife at this point? Aren't you? Well, that's what happens in the text. At this, they were completely astonished. They, they They were like, they didn't know what to say. Jesus gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this. Not how well that would work out, but anyway. And told them to give her something to eat. Don't you love that from Christ? See, she's totally healed. She's walking around and says to the parents, you know, why don't you give her something to eat? For her nutrition, you know, so we can kind of move on here. And Oh, by the way, don't tell anybody. We've seen this through Mark's gospel, haven't we? Scholars will often call it the messianic secret. Where you, you have, shh, demons are cast out and they start crying out, you're the holy one, shh. People are healed and Jesus says, shh. The disciples see the transfiguration, Jesus goes, shh, shh, shh. And sometimes we read that and say, what's that all about? Jesus is always walking this fine line between doing miracles to point to the reality of who he is and people being caught up so much with the miracles that they don't allow it to point them to who he really is. So Jesus says, on this one, I healed her out of my love and compassion. It doesn't have to be broadcast. It's just who I am. Wouldn't you think the whole world would come to Jesus? Not when you get to the next passage. Desperate faith in Jesus from Jairus and from this unnamed woman has to be contrasted with indifferent denial of Jesus in chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. Look at what it says. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, to Nazareth. Accompanied by his disciples... When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Is this, isn't that Jesus? Where did this man get these things? Even the term this man could be a little bit derisive in the way that it's stated. Who is this guy? What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles that he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Whoa, 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 whoa. He goes home. The people are aware that he's teaching in such a way that they go like, wow, that's pretty good. Wow. And we've heard and seen that he's done miracles. But he's just a carpenter. And he grew up in Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And rather than saying, allowing what he says and what he does to point them to the reality of who he is, familiarity does breed contempt. And they look at him and they say, I can't explain what he's saying and what he's doing, 
but he's not worth the effort. My wife and I, several years ago, were with some, um, some friends. We'd gone to a church service on Christmas Eve. And coming out of that service was, um, was a relative of, of our friend. And our friend asked, wasn't that good? It was a, it was a great service. And, and, and she asked her son, who knew all kinds of things about Christianity, had grown up in Christianity. And he said, eh, it was okay. And since then, he's walked away from God. Is it possible to be so familiar with Jesus that when you look at what he said, you look at his word, you go like, eh, whatever. Of the Bible, yeah, Bible. <laughs> Jesus, yeah, did some time, whatever. Nice guy, good teacher, whatever, yeah. And it doesn't make a difference in your life. At best, you're indifferent. And it's kind of offensive that people would live their whole life revolving around him. What's that all about? And that's exactly what happens in this text in his hometown. Jesus says in verse 4, A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown, among his relatives, and in his own home itself. He could not do any miracles there except lay hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. People are amazed all through this text. When Jesus is amazed, I kind of want to listen. <laughs> it's kind of important. And Jesus says, how can you see me and what I do? How can you hear me and what I teach? And just say, whatever. It's just Jesus. So what's this text pushing us to? I'd say this. We who are desperate, who are desperately needy should come in awe to Jesus in submissive faith. Because he will always respond compassionately and wisely in his sovereignty to our humble requests. Do you believe that? Oh, so if I'm sick, I will get better. No, I can't promise you that. But I can tell you this. You will never come to Jesus and Jesus will never say, busy, bye, who cares? He will always compassionately Always wisely, in his sovereignty, intercede in a way that's most appropriate for you. He is ever for you. He is never against you. So come with your desperation, your uncertainties, your questions, all of those doubts, all of it, all of it. And just come and say, Jesus, I don't know what to do. Nothing else has worked 
Help me, Jesus. And if you're not a believer, if you've never bowed at the knees of Jesus and entrusted him as Lord and Savior, in one moment, he will sweep you into his kingdom. He will forgive you of all your sins. He will name you son, daughter, in one moment. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we live our entire life coming to Jesus, don't we? We run and we come back and we fall before him and we say, I don't know what to do. I've tried it my own way. Please work for your glory and the good of your people. And he will always answer that request. Maybe not exactly the way you want it. Often he doesn't. But always in the way that you need it. There's hope for the needy who are in awe of Christ. But there is little hope for the complacent who are unimpressed with him. And it always concerns me in any church setting that there's always at least two groups. There are those whose lives are about, I can't, but he can, and they come to him. And there are those that go through the service with a yawn and say, who's playing in the football game this afternoon? Because that's more important. I don't know who you are in your heart, but I promise you this. If you come to Jesus for the first time for salvation, he will embrace you and save you and name you son and daughter. And if you are a Christian, no matter what the issue, come to him for he cares. And he will always do what is best. Father, I don't know what my brothers and sisters are facing right now. I know that each one of us faces a variety of different crises. Some of those crises are chronic. They've just been going on for year after year after year. And some of those are acute. They've just come up recently. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter our status in this world. It doesn't matter whether people know our name. What matters is that you know our name. What matters is that you love us and that you care. And you will never turn away desperate faith. Because we are coming to you. You will always embrace us. And you will always answer in a way that is best for us in the long run. And Father, for that, we greatly rejoice. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Several of us will be down here in the front. If for any reason you want to come down and pray, we would be delighted to spend some time in prayer with you. God bless.